Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, warm welcome to this evening's lecture, and I think we've got quite a treat this evening because, and I should say a big welcome to Tim Viner, who is uh, going to talk to us today around his new book, Enemies, A History of the FBI. Now, Tim studied uh, journalism at Columbia and uh, I think he was degree in history. In a, in a, oh, and a history. It was the Graduate School of Journalism, degree in history before that. He was in a, on a journal at, out of Philadelphia and then joined the New York Times in the mid-90s. And he is now devoid of any contact with journalism as he is a writer. His new book, which is going to be available, out, is available outside for you to get a copy of, is a splendid read. I only, I have to admit, got through the first chapter, but there's a super review of it in um, the Los Angeles Times, if I can find it. So I have to put my reading glasses just to give you this little paragraph. I thought it was rather good. Viner eviscerates the FBI in a sweeping narrative that is all the more entertaining because it's so redolent with screw-ups and scandals. Like his best-selling book, Legacy of Ashes, The History of the CIA, which documented misdeeds at the CIA, this is a mordant counter-history. It's a compendium of illegal arrests and detentions, break-ins and burglaries, wiretapping and surveillance. Weiner calls it a chronicle of the tug-of-war between national security and civil liberties, but it's clear to him which side won. The CIA denounced his last book. The FBI won't give him any medals for this one. Tim, welcome. Look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. It's an honor, a pleasure. I want to preface my remarks. Uh, I suspect there are political scientists as well as a few journalists among us. Political scientists and journalists are alike in the sense that they will go to great lengths to prove what everybody already knows. Um, I try, <clears throat> as best I can, to use the methodologies of history. Uh, this book, the CIA book, are on the record. <clears throat> they are uh, extensively uh, endnoted and annotated. Um, there are no blind quotes. Uh, there are no anonymous sources. Um, there is none of the, you know, sort of rat-like cunning of the journalist uh, employed, um, although it is an honorable trade. Um, and uh, I'm very happy to be employed as, you know, a writer of simple declarative sentences. Uh, and uh, I love newspapers. Uh, I was at the BBC a bit earlier today and was reminded of a story that may very well be true, although it is undocumented, we must call it apocryphal, that a BBC journalist uh, once asked uh, Mahatma Gandhi, Mr. Gandhi, what do you think of Western democracy? And he said, I think it would be a very good idea. Um, <clears throat> well, it is a good idea, uh, but we are still working on it. Um, it is very much a work in progress. Um, we have been at it for 236 years, and no free republic in the history of civilization has lasted longer than 300. Our Constitution commands us that we need to be both safe and free. We want liberty and security, and we want them both at the same time, but they are opposing forces. And the history of the FBI, which I will, I will now attempt to summarize at a rate of approximately three years a minute, um, is a chronicle of the struggle that we have and every democracy has, the British have it, the Germans have it, between the desire to be safe and free at the same time, between national security and civil liberties. The FBI was founded, few people know this, um, by President Theodore Roosevelt in 1908 with the help of his cunning Attorney General Charles Bonaparte, who was, yes, a grandnephew of the Emperor. And uh, President Roosevelt had come to power in 1901 when an anarchist assassinated the President of the United States. Now, anarchists had been killing kings and queens and earls and dukes and princes uh, across uh, Europe 
for several decades beforehand, but no one had ever assassinated a president of the United States with a political philosophy other than adherence to slavery. Um, and President Roosevelt, upon taking office in, at the age of 42, was quite concerned. He wanted to extend the force of the rule of law to project power across the United States, just as he was beginning to project power, American power, across the world. It was he who sent the United States Navy around the world for the first time. It was he who cut the Panama Canal without asking the Panamanians. Um, he wanted to project power, and the FBI was to be an instrument of projecting the rule of law against the forces of anarchy. By the time, eight years later, <clears throat> that J. Edgar Hoover showed up at the Department of Justice at the age of 22, the United States was at war. The first American troops were landing in France, and the threat was real. Uh, the Germans, uh, through their embassies, through their spies, had made cause with Irish nationalists and had blown up the greatest munitions depot in the United States, which was in New York Harbor. Thousands of tons of explosives went up in the middle of the night. The shrapnel scarred the Statue of Liberty. Windows shattered for miles around in Manhattan. And this was a real threat. We were at war, a world war for the first time. By the time the war was over, in Europe, barely a year later, the threat had shifted. And the Justice Department and the 10-year-old Bureau of Investigation were now much concerned with the threat from Lenin, Stalin, and their adherents, who were many in the United States. By the time the Communist Party of the United States was formed in 1920, J. Edgar Hoover had five agents <laughs> present at the birth uh, in Chicago, and they reported back to him. Before he turned 30, Hoover became director of the FBI in 1924, a position he held uninterrupted for 48 years. There is no equal to this in American history that a man would serve presidents as Hoover did. We think of the FBI as the FBI we know from movies and television and novels as a law enforcement agency, but that is the visible tip of the iceberg. What the FBI is today, first and foremost, and what it has been for most of the hundred years past, is a secret intelligence service that serves the President of the United States. With secret information, we know that information is power. Intelligence, secret information, is secret power. And secret intelligence that you and you alone can deliver to the president, now that is power cubed. Presidents want this information. They want it desperately to use against their enemies. By the time President Franklin D. Roosevelt called Hoover into the White House for the first time to meet one-on-one, face-to-face, in 1936, it was quite clear that there was going to be another war. Hitler was on the rise. And there were several hundred thousand American fascists marching around with silver shirts and swastikas. Stalin was on the rise, and there were at least 80,000 members of the American Communist Party. We were in the sixth year of the greatest economic depression we've known to date. Um, the president called Hoover into the White House. Remember that Hoover is now barely 40 years old. And he said, Edgar? I want you to develop a very clear picture of the power of fascists and communists in the United States. Hoover explained that to do that he would need unfettered power to use the tools of espionage and intelligence, wiretapping, bugging, the use of hidden microphones, the power to break into people's homes and steal their personal effects in contravention of the Fourth Amendment of the Bill of Rights which had been conceived as, an is as a protection against the general warrants that the British issued against the Americans during, uh, before during the American Revolution, to sabotage, to steal secrets. This power President Roosevelt gave to Hoover, and he used it. He preferred to use it against communists rather than fascists. Hoover was 
I think without question, the greatest uh, expert on American communism that existed in the American government. He had been studying it very closely since the Russian Revolution. There was only one impediment by the time the war had started in Europe at the end of 1939. The Supreme Court of the United States outlawed wiretapping. Hoover then embarked on an extraordinary um, move, which proves that he was not only one of the most interesting people in the history of the 20th century of the United States, but possibly the greatest bureaucrat the world has ever known. He made um, a direct appeal to every agent in the FBI to co come up, help him come up with an argument that would unilaterally and in secret overrule the decision of the Supreme Court. And he came up with a very interesting scheme. He did not know its full outlines. They would not be revealed until further investigation. But the gist of it was this. The Abwehr, Hitler's Foreign Intelligence Service, had a plan. It was quite an interesting plan. The Abwehr was not a first-rate intelligence service. This was possibly the canniest scheme they came up with vis-a-vis -vis the Americans. They ordered German-Americans who had been living in the United States for 10 years or more and spoke perfect English and knew their way around Chicago and New York to come into the nearest consulate or embassy where they were then ordered to sign a pledge of allegiance to the fatherland. They were then told to exchange their American dollars for a unique currency that the Third Reich had printed called Rückswanderer marks or returning immigrant marks. These would be exchanged at a highly favorable rate. Everyone made money. The Reich made money. The American banks made money. The Germans made money because the entire thing was underwritten with assets seized from uh, the Jews of Europe. And the cash that the German embassies and consulates, and of course where there are consulates and embassies, there are spies, uh, was used to finance American fascism and American anti-interventionists, chief of whom was Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator, who was a likely candidate to oppose Roosevelt in the 1940 elections. There was quite a bit of money floating around. The Germans, who were ordered to go back to the fatherland, were then shanghaied by the Abwehr and trained in sabotage and espionage and would return to the United States in the fullness of time to blow things up. Uh, Hoover learns the broad outlines of the scheme and he, what does he do? Does he go to the New York Times? No. Does he go to the President of the United States? No. He goes to the Secretary of the Treasury, Henry J. Morgenthau. And Hans Morgenthau was a German Jew, the Secretary of the Treasury, intensely interested in the progress of fascism, and in control of the banking system of the United States. Hoover explains the scheme to him. Morgenthau picks up the phone and calls the president. And in the next day, extraordinarily, in a written order, because President Roosevelt did not like to write down secrets, he tells Hoover, in so many words, to hell with the Supreme Court. You just keep on doing what you're doing to protect this country. You keep right on bugging, you keep right on spying, you keep on tapping telephones, do what it takes. Because we have an existential threat that's facing us. And here in this conversation, and in this written order, is the dilemma that we continued to face after the war was won. And we had a new enemy, our former ally Joseph Stalin. How are we going to do this? How are we going to run a secret intelligence service in this country under the rule of law? It is a dilemma that can not be resolved, but only fought over and struggled over like a tug of war. Harry Truman comes to office upon the sudden death of Franklin Roosevelt, and he said, he wrote, that he felt as if the sun and the moon and the stars and the sky had all fallen upon him at once. It was April 1945. Adolf Hitler was still alive, but not for long. He would die three weeks later. Winston Churchill was still in power, but not for long. He would lose, he would be turned out of office 
once the war was over. Joseph Stalin, on the other hand, was going great guns. Once President Truman understood some of the secrets of state that he was required to possess, along with the president, such as the existence of the atomic bomb, he made a rather close study of what Hoover was up to, and he did not like it. He said, and he wrote that summer, that he feared that Hoover had created, and I quote, an American Gestapo. Well, Hoover didn't like that one bit. And the two of them fought bitterly, hammer and tong, tooth and nail, for the, la the next eight years. By the time Truman was elected in his own right and took office in his own right in 1949, the broad outlines of Soviet espionage in the United States were becoming clear. The Soviets, as would become painfully clear within the year, had not only penetrated into the Manhattan Project through principally a German physicist employed by British intelligence named Klaus Fuchs, who was a committed communist and a brilliant physicist and who understood not only the secret of the atomic bomb but the hydrogen bomb. Um, Soviet espionage had also penetrated through British intelligence. That would be Kim Philby, Burgess, McLean, and possibly one or two others. Um, the Pentagon, the State Department, and the CIA. And Soviet intelligence, the KGB, as it would become formerly uh, known in the next year, the Committee for State Security, um, had also penetrated to Hoover's horror, the Justice Department and the FBI. Well, what are we going to do about this? They've got the secret of the bomb. They explode their first bomb in September 1949. They've got spies. How many, we don't know, but more than a handful. And it was a black and white world for Hoover and for almost everybody else in the United States. And Hoover went right on spying and <laughs> wiretapping and bugging. And um, the Soviets had had a 20-year head start. Um, there were Soviet spies in the United States in the 1920s, and by the time President Roosevelt recognized the Soviet Union and they opened up embassies and consulates, there were lots of spies. Um, and by the, the end of the 1940s, there were lots and lots of spies. It only takes one, really. Hoover caught up slowly throughout the 1950s, uh, never completely. Uh, and, but particularly after Dwight Eisenhower became president. Now, Dwight Eisenhower was possibly the first American president who really understood the power of intelligence. He had, after all, run the greatest secret operation in American history, D-Day. He loved J. Edgar Hoover. They really got along. Uh, they saw eye to eye. Um, but never more so when Hoover and the FBI executed a rather brilliant operation and placed the first American spy in the high councils of international communism in 1958. The man in question was a Russian Jew named, uh, renamed Morris Childs, who had uh, uh, moved to Chicago at a young age and joined the American Communist Party in 1920 when it was founded and who in the 30s and 40s had been the editor of the Daily Worker, the communist uh, daily newspaper in the United States. Um, as you know, uh, Stalinist parties tended to have purges, and the American Communist Party uh, had more than a few, and uh, Morris fell out of favor, or more likely he fell out of, he became disenchanted, and he left the party <clears throat> in 48. In 54, um, the FBI comes bellying up to Morris on a street in Chicago and says, Morris, how do you like to do something interesting for your country? He rejoined the Communist Party of the United States. He became its foreign secretary in 1958. And with the approval of the Kremlin, in the summer of 1958, he flew off to Moscow. Comrade, 
Tovarish, Morris, welcome home. He met with everybody. He met with the American Department of the KGB. He eventually met with Khrushchev. He met with the, the leading uh, Cuban communists in Moscow, um, Annabella Escalante. And after about six weeks of smoked fish and vodka and camaraderie, they said, Morris, we have a surprise for you. You're going to Beijing. You're going to Mao Zedong. Tell us what he's thinking. Morris flies off to Beijing and he sips tea with Mao Zedong and Mao is intensely interested in what the Russians are thinking. They hate each other. Well, this was a revelation to American intelligence when Morris finally got home and we know what he reported because six months ago his first debriefings were declassified and thank all the saints and stars they made it into this book. This is an example of how secret intelligence can really change history. There are a few such concrete examples down in black and white. Childs is debriefed upon his return. Over the course of the next months, he would return again and again. And over the course of the next 18 years, he made 58 trips like this. And he was never once suspected by the KGB. That's impressive. He was the first American spy who had ever penetrated international communism at any level, really. We had no idea what was going on in the Soviet Union. We had no idea what was going on in China. And it was a revelation. And we know this from reading his first three debriefings, uh, the gist of which runs to 116 single-spaced pages. The most important things that he reported through the FBI to Hoover, and Hoover reported only to the President of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Vice President of the United States, Richard Milhouse Nixon, and reluctantly to the Chief of Central Intelligence, Alan Dulles, whom he soundly despised. Interesting, the Russians and the Chinese are at each other's throats. We had thought that communism was monolithic. Well, they detest each other. That's interesting. Second, um, Annabelle Escalante, uh, the leading Cuban in Moscow, uh, reports of, and Childs reports in 1959 that the new leader in Cuba, a gentleman by the name of Fidel Castro, knows perfectly well that the United States is going to launch a paramilitary invasion to overthrow him at any point. This is why Ike does not approve the plan of the CIA to invade at the Bay of Pigs. He left that for his successor. And Nixon learns through Hoover on the eve of his first trip to Moscow, where he held his famous kitchen debate with Khrushchev, some of you will remember this, that the Russians rather like him. They like Ike. The Russians do. They know he understands war and peace. If Nixon's Ike's man, okay, da. They don't like Kennedy at all. They think he's young and irresponsible and a reckless adventurer. So armed with this, Nixon goes with confidence and goes belly to belly with Khrushchev. Uh, in the kitchen, and he thinks, Jesus, these people are capable of rational debate. They're like me. They must be rational. This idea serves him well when he becomes president a decade later, and he thinks about detente with the Russians and the Chinese. The third thing that Hoover learns that changed history through his spy Morris Childs is that the Communist Party of the Soviet Union is intensely interested in the civil rights movement in the United States. Who's that young man, Martin Luther King? He's interesting. Charles reports that King's closest white advisor, ghostwriter of his first book, intimate consul, is a man named Stanley Levison, who had been, for five years, up until he joined forces with Martin Luther King, a member of the communist underground in the United States, not the party, the underground. Well, this is catnip for J. Edgar Hoover. And it explains that his animus, which was bitter and intense and personal and one of the bleakest and most dishonorable stains in the history of the FBI, why he tried to destroy Martin Luther King for the next 10 years. It wasn't simply that he was a racist, which he was. He thought he was a communist or a communist dupe. This also explains 
why President Kennedy and his Attorney General, his 35-year-old brother, Robert F. Kennedy, say yes when Hoover says we need to wiretap King. We need to bug his bedrooms. We need to follow him. We need to gain the same intelligence on him that we have on the communists. The order to bug King's bedrooms and hotel rooms, to wiretap his phones, is signed by the Attorney General of the United States, Robert Francis Kennedy, shortly before his brother is assassinated. The order remains in effect. Lyndon Johnson takes office. Lyndon Johnson is intensely interested in being elected in his own right after the president is assassinated in his home state, Texas. He needs to win the South. He needs to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And he goes to J. Edgar Hoover and says, and this is all on tape, because the president taped Hoover. And you can listen to this on the internet anytime you want. It's in the Lyndon B. Johnson Presidential Library, on their, in their files and uh, in their archives. And he says, Edgar, I want you to get the same kind of intelligence on the Ku Klux Klan as you get on the communists. Now let us not forget what the Ku Klux Klan was. These are the gentlemen, wrong word. These are the terrorists with the white hoods and the white sheets. They were the most violent and murderous terrorist organization in the United States in the 20th century. They murdered thousands of people. They burned churches. They blew up churches. They killed little children. They shot people in the bank. And they controlled, through fear and force, the state police, the local police, and the high sheriffs, and the judiciary throughout the Deep South. Well, J. Edgar Hoover doesn't want to destroy the Ku Klux Klan. He thinks the problem in the South is, as he put it to the president, in the same conversation, the integrationists, not the segregationists. But the president has commanded him to do so. And using the same techniques as he had used on the Communist Party for many years, espionage, sabotage, subversion, dirty tricks, poison pen letters, brute force, he breaks the Ku Klux Klan like a dry twig. The last president Hoover served was Richard M. Nixon. They had known each other for 25 years. Neither Hoover nor Nixon really had friends in the sense that you and I would think of friends. But Hoover was about the closest thing that Nixon had, or so he said, on tape. His tape. In his conversations with Hoover. Which we also have although hundreds of hours have never been heard yet. We await. Richard Nixon is the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> and at the end of the day, at the end of Hoover's day, in the last year of his life when he was 77, and he had been in office for 48 years, he says no to the President of the United States when the President orders him to bug not the bombers of the far left who have put a bomb in the Pentagon where you and I cannot get without six security clearances and had it go off after calling and said it's going to go off in five minutes. This is the weather underground, some of you may recall. And they put a bomb in the Capitol and called it and said it's going to go off in five minutes and it went off in five minutes. These people were talented in their own way. But what Nixon orders Hoover to do is to bug not the weather underground, but the friends and the family and the mothers and the fathers of the weather underground and of the former Pentagon aide, Daniel Ellsberg, who has purloined the Pentagon Papers, the secret history of the Vietnam War, and given it to the New York Times. This Hoover will not do. He has been perfectly happy for 35 years since President Roosevelt gave him the power to do so, to bug, wiretap, break and enter, black bag jobs, anything the president commands. But this time he thinks he's going to get caught. And if the targets are not the direct targets, but rather the friends and families and what you're getting is secondary and tertiary evidence, it's not worth the candle for him. 
because everything he has worked for, everything he has built, everything he has created will be tarnished and he will be gone and he will not be there to protect this institution which is his life, it's his wife, it's his everything. He made this out of nothing. And he says no to the President of the United States. So what does the President do? He sets up his own little bucket shop down in the basement of the White House. And they were known as versus the plumbers because they wanted to plug the leaks that were coming out of the White House that were enraging the President and Henry Kissinger. Hoover dies 2 May 1972. Six weeks later, the plumbers are caught breaking into the Watergate Hotel into the Democratic Party headquarters. Who investigates this crime, this violation of federal wiretapping statutes? It's the FBI. And their number two man, who's the acting director, whose name is Mark Felt, and whom we now know as Deep Throat. And they bring down the President of the United States. And they put his Attorney General and his consiglieris and his Gautleiters, Haldeman and Erichman, in prison. There will be hell to pay for this. After Nixon falls, under a Republican administration, Mark Felt, who had been the number two man, and his number three man, the head of FBI intelligence, Ed Miller, are indicted for breaking into the homes and the offices of the friends and relatives of the Weather Underground. They had said yes, because they wanted to be the next J. Edgar Hoover, didn't they? They are indicted, they are convicted, they are sentenced to prison, and they are pardoned by President Reagan shortly after the president takes office. Thus began a long dark night of the soul, 20 years really, where the FBI is struggling, struggling, weak directors, no will, no understanding from presidents, no real backing from presidents. And the FBI is failing. In 1979, the FBI was penetrated at the highest levels by one of its own, an FBI agent named Robert Hansen, who worked undetected for 22 years for Moscow. His job was essentially handling all the computerized systems that handed all Soviet intelligence and counterintelligence in the United States. They knew everything. The FBI was also penetrated in this era, the late Cold War and the 90s, by the Chinese, by the Cubans, and in the mid-1990s by an Egyptian agent of Egyptian Islamic Jihad who worked for a gentleman named Osama bin Laden. Intelligence is a sword and shield. And we know from the time of the history and the catapult that every time you make a stronger shield, somebody's going to make a sharper sword. The FBI had gotten out of the business of intelligence and counterintelligence. It was too dangerous. And it really fell apart under the Clinton administration. Clinton had an FBI director who was really not of his choosing. His name was Louis Free, who had been an FBI agent, a federal prosecutor, a judge. And when he saw the President of the United States, he did not see a commander-in-chief, he saw a criminal suspect. The FBI had Clinton under investigation for almost all eight years he served. Initially, because they had this tip from their best source on Chinese intelligence that campaign money from Taiwan and other mysterious Chinese sources was flowing into the Clinton White House. The informant, a woman named Katerina Lung, best FBI informant ever. She was working for Chinese intelligence, sleeping with her control officer at the FBI. She was being paid $1.7 million over the course of 17 years. This is the organization that's supposed to protect the United States from uh, attack, from subversion, from terrorists. So by the turn of the century, by the end of Clinton's term, and by the end of Louis Fries <clears throat> unhappy eight years as head of the FBI, the thing is falling apart. The new director, our present director of the FBI, 
Robert Mueller, Marine, Blue Blood, Princeton, international relations degree, volunteers to join the Marines in 1967, is wounded and receives several medals for valor in combat. Excellent federal prosecutor, very straight shooter in both senses of the word. Um, he becomes the head of the FBI and God help him for September 2001. And the extraordinary thing is that Robert Mueller, who has now served 11 years, is the man who has restored the balance between national security and civil liberties. When the FBI goes down to Guantanamo in 2002 and they see what the CIA and the military are doing to prisoners in Guantanamo, they open up a file entitled War Crimes. When the FBI see what is going on in Abu Ghraib and in the CIA's secret black sites, in 2003, they reported up the chain of command, all the way up the chain of command. And by the, by the time Robert Mueller, the head of the FBI, understands the program that the President of the United States, George W. Bush, has set up to conduct electronic eavesdropping in the United States outside of the law, outside of any judicial warrant, against Americans, eavesdropping, bugging, wiretapping. Mueller walks into the Oval Office in March 2004 with a handwritten letter of resignation in his breast pocket. Resignations on principle are very rare in American government. They happen about once a decade. And he says, Mr. President, eyeball to eyeball in the Oval Office, and we know this because Mueller took notes that were published after President Bush left office. He says, look, what you're doing is against the law, and what you're doing is against the Constitution. And either you scale it back and dial it down and get it within the ambit of the law, or I am going to resign. And so is the Attorney General of the United States. What would have happened then? had Bush not backed down? What would have been the next question after the FBI director and the attorney general resign on principle? That question would have been, why? And what would the answer have been? We can't tell you it's too secret. The government of the United States would have fallen. The ambit of this program, the extent of it, the depth of it, were not revealed in any which way in public until the end of 2006. Mueller has never spoken of it in public, but he has said time and again that he will not be the man who goes down in history as being handed a medal and said, told, congratulations, you won the war on terror, but you lost our civil liberties. This he will not do. And the extraordinary thing is that in the past three years, since the centennial of the FBI, they're getting it right. It's an extraordinary thing, not perfect. This is a very delicate calibration, civil liberties and national security. And they're getting it right because Mueller is an honorable man who has principles and who understands the law. And we have a president of the United States who is something of a constitutional law scholar, isn't he? And who has lectured at university on the topic. When the FBI errs, as they will, because intelligence is a human endeavor and it is prone to human error, they will admit it. Sometimes they have to be dragged kicking and screaming into court to do it, but they will admit it. And Mueller will get it right. It's an extraordinary evolution. Uh, we are now, I reckon, more safe and not yet less free. Let's keep our fingers crossed. Thank you.
Yeah, what a lecture. That was really fascinating. And uh, we've got half an hour for questions. I'm sure there'll be quite a number of questions. So I would uh, encourage you to ask a question and not to uh, join Tim giving a lecture. Uh, so I'll take the gentleman at the far back. Uh, you indicated that the uh, origin of, uh, the, of Hoover's illegality was, uh, uh, you said, power given to him uh, by Roosevelt. Um, I don't understand what under what authority uh, Roosevelt was in a position to give him that power, and I just wonder whether uh, it might be more accurate to describe uh, Roosevelt uh, and his successors together with uh, Hoover, perhaps in partners in crime in the sense of breaching what presumably were rather fundamental um, federal uh, criminal acts. You ask what power the President of the United States had to give an, an executive order? Well, he was the President of the United States, wasn't he? Um, he did not have the power to overrule the Supreme Court uni unilaterally, um, nor does he in principle have the power um, to violate the Constitution or the laws of the United States. But as his Attorney General, one of his Attorneys General, Francis Biddle once wrote, no president at war has been a great respecter of the Constitution. And almost every president since Roosevelt has seen himself at war. So this is part of the struggle that we have. These are not absolutes. They are, let me rephrase that. That was inartful. The Constitution is written in absolutes, but it was written by human beings who knew that men were not angels and that the rule of law would have to be sorted out in this triumvirate system they created with the President and the Congress making the laws the Supreme Court interpreting the laws, and they hoped to the devil that they could work it out. We're still trying to work it out. Gentlemen in the... Sorry, please, please wait for the uh, microphone. We're very interested to know the process involved in your producing the book. Was it long? Was it antagonistic? Was it confrontational? Was it difficult? Were you intimidated and threatened or what? You know, it's an extraordinary thing. We don't have an official secrets act. We don't have denotices. We have a Freedom of Information Act. And I had just published a rather long book about the history of the CIA, which was based entirely on the record um, and extensively annotated. And about three weeks after this book came out in the United States, I got a call from a lawyer who I knew dimly and said, Tim, he said, I have just received the fruits of a 26-year-old Freedom of Information Act filed by another reporter who is now long retired. Uh, and I have Hoover's intelligence files from 1945 onward. It's about 7,000 documents. It's roughly 30,000 pages. I have it on compact disc and I have it in banker's boxes. Which way would you like it? I said both ways, please. <laughs> I felt as if a miracle would, ha would happen because here on hundreds of pages, front pages of these documents are Hoover's handwritten notes written in blue ink. The order of the day would come up, the problem of the day, of the week, of the month, of the year, of the decade. This is his in file slugged intelligence. Okay, The reports would come up for Hoover's eyes only and he would write on them in a royal blue ink in his hand. And it's reading these things is like looking over his shoulder and listening to him think out loud. And you get a rather more multi-dimensional picture of him. He's not a monster. He's a Machiavelli. His mind was narrow, but it was very deep. He knew things. Presidents did what he said half the time. And he did what presidents said almost all the time. So you get a rather more complex picture that says one uh, leg of the stool. The second leg is that the FBI began at the end of the Cold War to record highly classified top secret oral histories with their agents who had served during World War II and they continued this program and they're continuing it right now. 208 of these were declassified. I think I'm the first person to make use of them. They're extraordinary. 
And the third pillar is that the FBI itself, God bless it, marked its centennial by beginning to declassify its Cold War files. So here you have, uh, in some total, more than 70,000 pages of documents. Some of them are delete, you know, heavily deleted, but you can make, the, make out the gist of even the semi-blacked-out uh, ones. The government has an inexhaustible black pen, but you can still you know, suss it out even when it's partly de uh, declassified. It's quite extraordinary. I don't think you could write this book you could write an official history of the intelligence services, and uh, Christopher Andrew has, but it's still an official history with all due respect. Are you going to tell that one about the uh, borders? The story, we, unfortunately, it's untrue. Oh. <laughs> but it's a great story. It's apocryphal. Is that Hoover had a substitute secretary, and she didn't type the orders of the day the way he wished them. The margins were too wide, and there was enough room at the bottom for his handwritten orders. And he wrote, watch the borders underneath, and hundreds of FBI agents immediately decamped from Mexico and Canada. <laughs> I wish it were true, but it's not, sadly. Can we have a question from the West Wing? Oh, they've gone Speak up. Don't be shy. Uh, well, I'm interested. The, do you well? Do you think that the uh, Venona intercepts prove beyond any doubt that Alger Hiss and Harry Dexter White were Soviet agents? I mean, I, I mean, I know it's not quite this topic, but it's, it's very important. It's point. very on top. It, it's, it's extremely important point. I'm interested. Want to know exactly what you think? Let, let's make sure everybody knows what Venona is. Um, through uh, blind luck and brute brain power because we were working, they were working, with pen and pad and uh, little punch-out cards uh, before the computer age. Uh, the American military and the FBI, with considerable help from GCHQ, um, began to decode wartime Soviet cables, 44 and 45, they began to make this breakthrough, which is, you know, these things are written in one-time pads of five digits. And a one-time pad means you don't reuse the pad. So the code is, could be broken once, but you'd have no idea what the next page said. Um, and under extreme duress in 1945, the Soviet military and diplomatic services reused their one-time pads. They ran out of paper, poor guys. In 1948, 1949, and 1950, particularly due to a just brilliant fellow named Merrill Gardner, who I once had the pleasure of interviewing uh, in 1995, through cryptanalysis, which is not an American art, because we don't do languages very well, the thing has to be cracked and decoded and then decrypted and translated. It's a multi-stage process. He got a break, didn't he? Because he saw that a pattern had been repeated, and it said spell in Russian, and then in American it spelled a name, and then it said unspell, meaning stop, you know, start, stop. Break. There isn't any question that Alger Hiss was a Soviet spy. Um, it's unfortunate, but it's true. Uh, this is a man uh, who was a, a distinguished uh, State Department uh, diplomat and who helped Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman and others form the framework for the United Nations. Harry Dexter White is another story because he didn't have any deep intelligence. You know, he worked in the Treasury Department. But there's no doubt that Soviet espionage began to burrow into the government of the United States in the 1930s. And they never got quite as deep as they did here. But they were, they were present. Do we have a microphone up there? Just shout it out if we don't. Shout it out. Can I go? Yes, please. You did prefer to organize crime for non-political mafia. There's a man I've heard a lot about, a man who's a criminal genius, Mayor Lansky. I think he's aware of You are outside my field of expertise. Oh, okay. 
Um, the mob, um, organized crime, the mafia, la cosa nostra, call it what you will. Um, uh, this touches on intelligence only really once, but in a re remarkable way, which is when the Central Intelligence Agency contracts with the capo di tutti capi in Chicago, whose name is Sam Giancana, to hit Fidel Castro. Because they have a commonality of interest, don't they? The mob wants its casinos back. The United States wants communism out of the Western Hemisphere. Let's break bread, let's talk. Ah. It was a crackpot scheme. Unfortunately, it was approved by the Director of Central Intelligence, Alan Dulles. Um, it didn't work in the event. But Hoover found out about it, didn't he? And he certainly let the Attorney General of the United States, who had made his name, Robert Kennedy, by being a great mob-busting, racket-busting investigator in the Senate, he let him know about it with both barrels. That is a really unfortunate use of image. I apologize for that. Um, thank you very, very much indeed. I, I would just say from my personal experiences when I worked in um, the UK Customs Service that uh, the importance of um, a man of integrity at the top and the difference that can make is very, very, very real. My question is um, related to the, the years of difficulty, you said, in the, in the 1990s, um, where it really lost its way. Um, were you referring, among other things, to the case of the um, identification of the suspicious uh, flight training exercises oh, by Lord. the 9-11? It's unbearable. Bomb? It's um, an unbearable story, and it is related in some detail in this book. And you, you said you, work, you worked in the Customs Service. All right. The analyst, sorry? That's impressive. All right. The 9-11 attack succeeded because of a systemic failure of the American government. It wasn't the fault of the FBI or the CIA only. It was a fault of the Customs Service of the United States of the FAA, which regulates aircrafts and didn't, didn't think that it was necessary to put locks on the cabin doors. It was a failure of, of intelligence. It was a failure of foresight. Intelligence is, among other things, the ability to predict surprise. Difficult. We knew Al-Qaeda was coming, just as we knew the Japanese would certainly attack somewhere. But the time and place, no. Fragments of intelligence were scattered throughout the American government. Were the FBI and the CIA talking to one another? They were not. Was the FBI talking to the White House? It was not. On the afternoon of 10 September 2011, an FBI agent in Minneapolis sends a frantic email to a quite senior woman in the FBI whom he knows and trusts who was working at the National Security Agency, which is our GCHQ. She's a liaison officer. He has found a fellow in Minneapolis three weeks ago, and they have been communicating for the past three weeks, figuring out a deal with this, who is training how to fly a 747 but doesn't want to know how to take off or land. His name is Zacharias Moussaoui. He is an Algerian with a French passport. He's a very, very, very angry man. He has $3,000 in cash and a three-inch folding knife in his pocket. And the FBI would very much like a search warrant from a judge to look at his computer. The superiors in the FBI said, no, we need a proof that he's Al-Qaeda. They didn't understand the law, God bless them. They have to live with that every day of their lives. Now, you raise another important point which is the importance of that a man of integrity can bring to an institution. At the FBI Academy where they drill new agents, which by no coincidence is across the street from the Marine Corps um, Central Command 
in Virginia. For decades, when Hoover was alive and afterwards, they drilled the trainees in a line from, of all people, the early 19th century American transcendentalist, Wal Ralph Waldo Emerson. And that line is, an institution is the lengthened shadow of a man. We still live in Hoover's shadow 40 years after his death. Lady in the second row, thank you. Hi, Kim Scholler. Um, my question is, as I had seen Dana Priest speak on her book, Top Secret America. Fantastic person. Yes. Um, what I would like to know is, could you talk a little bit about how all this money and the expansion of how that happened with the intelligence or specifically the FBI? Well, I, that's a very good question coming from an American. Are you going to put that into context? Yes, I will. Dana Priest is one of the greatest reporters uh, in the United States. She works for the Washington Post. She has twice won the Pulitzer Prize and earned it. Um, and she is uh, the best reporter on the subject of intelligence we have. And she's got brains and she's got heart and she's got kidney. The intelligence budget of the United States um, is officially classified, but it's very hard to keep a secret of any import in the United States. So it's roughly south, a bit south, of 100 billion, billion with a B, dollars a year. It's quite a lot of money. The, the gentleman from Customs, what would you say the intelligence budget of the UK might be, roughly, within the nearest 10 billion? It was well under $10 billion. Dollars, not pounds. Um, we're Americans. You know our elected representatives. They see a problem, they double the budget. Um, money is not the problem of intelligence. We can build all the billion dollar spy satellites we want, and we do. We can build all the multi-billion dollar electronic eavesdropping systems we want, and we do. But Sun Tzu, the Chinese general, wrote 26 centuries ago everything that you really need to know about what intelligence is and how it works. In three words, he said, know your enemy. Now, a satellite can tell you what your enemy is thinking, can, he? can it? Nor can a computer. To know what another person is thinking, you have to talk to him. And that is the job of spies and intelligence officers. And we are, as I repeat, Americans. We want everybody to talk English, don't we? We don't do Arabic very well, or not until recently. We don't do Pashto the language that's spoken in eastern Afghanistan. That was hard even for the Brits. They called it the language that would be spoken in hell. It's very difficult. We don't do much Chinese. We don't do uh, uh, Urdu, Hindi. You know, these are the languages that bring down your grade point averages. They're very tough. But we do have a remarkable resource that the FBI has begun to draw upon in the last decade. We have hundreds of thousands of American-born citizens who are second generation and who speak Arabic, don't they? And they speak particular dialects of Arabic in you know, Detroit and outside Detroit that are spoken in downtown Damascus. Handy, isn't it? And these are patriotic Americans. It's a big problem to get a security clearance. But the FBI has gotten better at this and so have the CIA. <laughs> Bob Gates, <clears throat> who was until very recently our Secretary of Defense and used to be the head of the CIA uh, and was our great Russia hand, although he had never actually seen Russia um, until Gorbachev invited him in 1988 uh, when he was working for the first, uh, sorry, 1989 when he was working for the first President Bush and he gets off the plane, Gorbachev knows who he is, and he says, Mr. Gates, how does it look from the ground? <laughs> 
when Gates was the head of the CIA, and he at served, he is a truly fine guy, and he was a great Secretary of Defense, and Obama was lucky that he stayed on. When he was head of the CIA, uh, just at the end of the Cold War, he wanted to hire a fellow who spoke Azeri, the language of, of Azerbaijan. We didn't have too many, I think none, actually, um, working for American intelligence. And he want, keeps trying to hire this guy, you know, and they, he doesn't show up. And he finally he asks the, the chief of personnel, what the hell happened to the Azeri? And he, the <laughs> chief of personnel at the CIA said he failed his English test. He'd say, I have thousands of people who can speak English. I want someone who speaks Azeri, please. Um, there are many such stories. It's a hard business. It's a very hard business. We're beginners. The British have been at this since Queen Elizabeth I. The Russians have been at it since Peter the Great. We've only really been at it since the end of World War II in a serious way. When the empire fell and you all said, over to you, Yanks, you take care of Western civilization. We've had it. Um, thank you very much for a very interesting talk. You spoke more about um, uh, spies sent by intelligence services of other countries uh, who attained information from within the FBI, China, Russia, all sorts of other mm -hmm. places. Um, could you possibly comment on any uh, information that the Israelis might have uh, obtained from within the FBI, or do they not need to because the, the Israelis? Yeah, do they not need to because of collaboration from the FBI? Are, yeah, or the CIA? Yeah, do they everybody not need spies to? on everybody else, my friend. Okay. Liaison is penetration. You shake hands with one hand, you try to pick the other guy's pocket with your left hand. That's the way it works, and it's been going on since Joshua took Jericho. Do wait for the microphone. Thanks for your talk. Um, one thing about you know, doing things above the book, do you think, or is there any question of uh, things you know, that are underhand, but really a president you know, probably ought to be entitled to, to break the law in some way? I mean, considering, I mean, I, I can see you're shaking your head, but. Yeah, Can you asked, give me an example? Yeah, I will give it. I will give an example because obviously it's, it's topical, or has been topical in the last few years. So the idea of torture, uh, you know, with a ticking bomb type scenario, if you create that psychological. The experience. screenplay of Twenty Four. Well, I've not, not seen the film, but I, I, don't, yeah. I don't watch TV. But all right, here's my friend Mohammed. I think he's a ticking time bomb. I think he has intelligence of existential importance. I'm going to pull his fingernails out until he tells me what it is. People will say anything to stop torture, and any skilled interrogator knows that. The FBI has very clear, ironclad rules on interrogation. No force, no threats, no violence, no intimidation. And the fact is you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Distinguished gentleman in the fourth row. Third row. Can you tell us, please, how much uh, Mr. Hoover blackmailed uh, the President of the United States? I will attempt to do that. It takes two to commit the act of blackmail the blackmailer and the man with the guilty conscience. There is only one conceivable example. People feared Hoover because knowledge is power. They thought he had more than he actually did, and he didn't mind them thinking that. There's only one documentable example where Hoover had information, secret information, that would have certainly <clears throat> caused the President of the United States to be possessed of a guilty conscience. In 1942, the FBI followed a very beautiful Norwegian, I believe, woman named Inga Arvad, who had been, among other things, Hitler's publicist at the 1936 Olympics, and was working at the time for a conservative Washington newspaper as a society columnist. Very beautiful woman. Kind of looked like Hedy Lamarr. Do you remember Hedy Lamarr? 
So they follow her, as FBI agents are wont to do, because they think she's a Nazi spy. And she goes down to Virginia, and she goes to a, a nice little hotel outside a Navy base, and there she has a romantic afternoon with a young Navy lieutenant whose name is John Fitzgerald Kennedy. It's on tape. There's a transcript. I have not heard the tape, but presumably the bed springs are squeaking. <laughs> Hoover's good friend, actually a man who tried to hire him away from the FBI to work as his personal security chief for $100,000 a year in the 1950s, which was a goodly sum of money, is the former ambassador of the court of St. James's, Joseph P. Kennedy. Does Ambassador Kennedy know this information? You bet $100,000 a year he does. Mr. Hoover let him know it. To protect his son against Paula, you know, just in case, you know, this indiscretion should ever come back. Well, my God, does Joe Kennedy tell his son, the senator who's running for president of the United States? He does. Therefore, the President of the United States knows that Hoover has somewhere evidence that 20 years ago he was uh, enjoying intimate knowledge with a woman who suspected, incorrectly apparently, of being a Nazi spy. But a woman, not his wife, uh, who was married to another man at the time. It's the only really documentable example we have. But again, it takes two to blackmail and it takes a guilty conscience. And there were plenty of guilty consciences in Washington then as now, and with good reason. Now, ladies and gentlemen, before I uh, thank Tim for a wonderful lecture and invite you to join in uh, in our appreciation of his uh, presentation, I want to make a little announcement, and that is that copies of Tim's book, and he's given such a wonderful entree to it, are available outside. If you would like to buy one, I'm afraid you have to pay cash because we're spooks here and we don't believe in plastic money. No. Uh, you have to pay cash and you will be able to bring it back into this hall and have it signed by the author. Now those of you who are thinking that you'll wait for it to come on Kindle or you know some other device, can I just say it's, it's, it's a rather nicely produced book by Ellen Lane. It's one of those books oh, that... My publisher is here and will oh. you rise please Simon? <clears throat> this is an honorable man who practices an honorable trade. And if you don't buy books, we're all going to be out of work, aren't we? It's a lovely thing, a book. It's one of the few handmade things you can buy that's really artfully made. Except for pos possibly British haberdashery. <laughs> now, I assure you, I wasn't set up to do the promotion for this book. But for those of you who like books, as I do, it's a pleasure to have a decent one. So, uh, they're available outside and do bring them back in. And uh, let me just say, Tim, that's been, I guess, for some of the younger members of the audience, something of past history. But those of us who uh, lived through quite a bit of it, it was a fascinating uh, and intriguing uh, insight into a number of episodes where one simply didn't quite know what was happening. And I shall carry on reading your book and uh, learn a great deal more of it. So thank you very much for coming. A great it's pleasure. It's been a real pleasure to listen to you.